2022 has been a challenging year for growers across the country, Colorado in particular. But difficult conditions also bring new opportunities. How are progressive farmers on the front range and beyond seizing the advantage? That's today on Field Posts. Fieldpost is a DTN Progressive Farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. Since 2005, DTN Progressive Farmer has been selecting two farmers every year from various parts of the country to participate in their annual View from the Cab project. These farmers spend a full year getting to know DTN's Pamela Smith as they work through weekly calls and check-ins, sharing their stories and their seasons with the rest of the farm community. 2022's farmers are no exception, and today we're happy to be joined by Colorado farmer Mark Arnish to talk about water, farm business strategy, and thinking about his operation's future. We'll dive into Mark's history with specialty crops, his recent explorations into seeds and distilling, and learn more about his perspective on investment and growing the farm's team right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by the 2022 DTN Ag Summit, this year happening virtually. Here's Katie Dellinger for a little bit more on the agenda and how to register. I'm really excited about this year's Ag Summit. We've got a good lineup of people, including CHS's Senior Vice President for Customer Engagement, Gary Halverson. He's really going to speak with us about some of the different risks and uncertainty in the marketplace today, what farmers can do to navigate this environment where things are just incredibly volatile. So I'm looking forward to seeing what he has to say and share. And I'm also really excited about the conversation we're gonna have with former Minnesota Representative Colin Peterson and Kansas Senator Pat Roberts talking about the next Farm Bill and the Farm Bill discussion. I think there's some interesting conversations coming down that pike, especially with the Biden administration and the direction that the Agriculture Department looks like they want to head as far as some of these issues around sustainability. We'll also have a really good session on carbon credits with a farmer or two sharing their experience as well as representatives from a couple of different companies and projects about how farmers can find a way to see if carbon credits are the right fit for their business and what the right avenue for those might be. And I also want to remind everyone we're doing Ag Summit virtually this year, so there's no need to travel. You can enjoy and partake in all this great content from the comfort of your home, and we look forward to seeing everyone there. Registration is open. It is at dtn.com slash agsummit. You can find all of the details there, including more about what's on the agenda. Visit the website to find out more about how you can attend this year's 2022 DTN Ag Summit. Now, back to the show. 2022 View from the Cab Farmer Mark Arnish joins us today from his farm in northeastern Colorado. Mark, give us kind of the background on your farm. What are the essential details of your operation? Well, Sarah, thank you for inviting me here today. This is the first time I've ever done a podcast, so this is going to be a new one for me. My name is Mark Arnish, and our family is a very diversified family. We farm here in the Prospect Valley region of Colorado, which is located about 35 miles northeast of Denver. We're irrigated primarily, a little bit of dry land acreage, and we've done a number of things over time. I've been a large onion grower for a number of years. I was a sugar beet producer for a long time. But today we specialize in growing seed wheat, 
seed barley, grains for the craft beer and spirits industry, and then feed ingredients for the livestock sector here in Colorado. Talk to us a little bit about just the conditions that you face this year. Love to hear your reactions to it, but also how has it changed maybe your mindset or the way that you're thinking about going into the next couple of years? Well, you know very well that farming in the high plains of eastern Colorado and certainly southern Wyoming can be challenging and drought is around every corner, it feels like. And so we've grown up in that space. And sometimes it's harder for us to manage around wet than it is too dry. But we've come accustomed to uh, really trying to match our crop to the water that we have available. We've had a very challenging year this year. We have two water supplies on our farm. One comes from an aquifer, one comes from the South Platte River. And our South Platte River water ran out about 10 days into July. We knew that was going to happen. So we idled a number of our acres, which is not unusual for us. But we idled more this year than we have in a long time. Our water wells began to decline in, say, the last half of August, early September. So we somewhat limped across the finish line. Um, But I think what we've done this year is we've shown that we're resilient. Our business plan worked well. We were blessed with some very robust markets. We were smart enough this year to sell into those markets. And so anything that we were able to grow on the farm this year, we've marketed extremely well. Our wheats, our barleys, uh, that we had a mixed bag of results. On our farm, my irrigated acres relied heavily on, on surface water supplies, and my yields weren't very good. But my niece and nephew-in-law, they actually had a very good wheat yield this year. In fact, they were able to win the state of Colorado for the Irrigated Wheat National Yield Contest. So even though our challenges were many, theirs were few. And it just shows you the potential of this community if we have that water availability. That water question is so top of mind for folks, especially in your area. I wonder what kind of those pressures look like in terms of We hear a lot, uh, buzzwords are buy and dry and all these pressures from alternative uses, both of the land, which I imagine is strong that close to Denver, but also of the water itself. Talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of those pressures and how you're managing that. There are a lot of competing interests for water, not just in my community, but across all of Colorado. And farming in the shadows of the Denver metropolitan area has certainly put the target on us. In my little farming community, there's about 33,000 irrigated acres in the Prospect Valley area. And once upon a time, our former state governor owned the majority of the wells in this area. They came out, they bought up a lot of farms at very attractive prices to those that chose to sell and are now starting to move that water towards the metropolitan area. So we're starting to see our community in a phase of transition. There's a lot of farms that used to be highly productive, very well managed, uh, grew some tremendous crops that are now just growing dryland crops. And so as a, what I would consider a younger farmer trying to grow their operation, that's challenging. And certainly that's been the case for my son who's come back to the farm about five years ago, and then certainly for the first generation farmers that we've helped start on our farm, my niece and nephew. But those competing interests also provide opportunity. For instance, my son, his operations based around growing alfalfa for the equestrian industry, grows a lot of small square alfalfa for horses, small acreage folks, and he's really done a good job of networking and developing that business model. It really carries his farm. 
And the same is true in our craft beer space. The grains from our farm are well in over 150 different beers across the country. And we have started to develop a relationship with a lot of these urban distillers and brewers that helps us advocate and tell our story about agriculture. I want to dig into some of those markets because I think it's such a unique opportunity, but I think the kind of opportunity that a lot more people are, are trying to explore, interested in exploring, obviously Northern Colorado, Northeastern Colorado specifically, a very, kind of a hot spot for brewing in general, but talk about maybe how you made those first contacts and how the story of selling into the kind of craft brewing market started for you all. Well, we found our way into that market space literally by accident. We had exited the produce business back in 2013. We had grown about six or 800 acres of onions year over year because of food safety regulations, profitability, and access to labor. We closed down that portion of our business, but we, went, we needed to pivot. We needed to move to another value-added sector within agriculture instead of just becoming a commodity grower. And so we moved into the seed wheat side of things. There was demand there for certain varieties to be grown here in the High Plains. And then a seed company out of Fort Collins named Lima Grain approached us about growing seed barley. And seed barley in Colorado has traditionally been channeled towards the feed side of things. There, now there are some malt growers here in Colorado for the Coors Brewing Company, and there's certainly a number of them up in Wyoming. But they had these two lines, these two products that they were really positioning well with craft brewers. And so we started growing a couple of those product lines as seed, but then we found there was demand for the grain side as well. And we had demand from New Belgium, Orson Dragon in Fort Collins, Oscar Blues, and then we found some connections in the craft malt space that really drew our interest. It drove demand. They positioned us very well to be in front of brewers, consumers, other interested parties. And now we're in not only those brew pubs, but we're also in a number of distilleries countrywide as well. I'm curious, we've talked to a couple folks here on the podcast in some other forums about working with these, I'm going to call them unconventional kind of sales channels. Though I think in a lot of ways, they're super conventional. They're super farmers have been doing this kind of work for a long time. But I think one of the pushbacks I hear from farmers is like, it's so much work. It's so much time off the farm. It's so much time away from the stuff that I love, which is being in the field and working closer to the ground. And that's why I don't want to do that because it's just, it feels like it takes them away maybe. And that maybe the commodity marketing they do isn't as lucrative or isn't as doesn't fit as well in their business model, but it just is easier. Basically, it's less time consuming. I'm sure you run into growers like that. I'm curious how conversations go about just like, ah, it's not worth the, it's not worth all that effort. What's your response to that kind of critique? I don't have to look very far to, to run into those farmers. My father was one of those that, gosh, just grow a crop, pull it to the elevator, sell it, you'll be fine. That's not good enough. We have to have a value proposition in what we grow. We were used to that growing sugar beets. We were used to that growing onions. We had to create some value. And so we, yes, we do take the necessary steps to create that dialogue. Yes, it is a tremendous amount of work and effort, but it's also very rewarding. And I'll tell you a story about why it's so rewarding. We were having some challenges with one brewery in particular that just couldn't quite get the taste and the texture that they were looking for in their beer. And I said, look, I'm a farmer. I don't understand any of the chemistry that goes into the fermentation process, but help me out. Why aren't you getting there? 
And they said, well, because of the starch and it's conversions to sugar and it's all these different things. Well, once we started to isolate and identify what their challenges were, we could work the equation backwards into the field and in, onto the farm. And what we found out is some of the stresses that we were inherently putting the crop through, whether it was irrigating during the heat of the day, whether it was pushing fertility to maximize top end yield, those issues were causing us some quality constraints. And once we unlocked that potential, and once we understood the challenges that we were creating for the brewer, we could manipulate that in the field. And not only were we successful the very first time we tried it, we've replicated it time and time again. And all we've asked from the brewer was sharing part of that value with us, sharing part of that efficiency we're bringing to the table. And they have, and they've done it time and time again. In fact, I just received an email here today from a distiller who's looking for a flavor profile for a single malt whiskey that they're trying to distill out of wheat. And I think we've got the right variety. I think we have the right quality on the farm. We're going to send them off a test batch here later today that likely will become whiskey in about 40 months. So I think we're able to solve some of the challenges that the fermentation space has, but it's because we've put in the time. We're listening and we're understanding and we're learning. And that's created value for everyone in that circle. And it sounds fun. Oh, there's nothing more fun than to go into a tasting room and taste some of the grain that's been malted or been fermented into a finished product and understanding how you got there and how we can improve it. I want to ask too about, you mentioned doing some seed wheat, challenging, challenging time for wheat, I think really everywhere, no, nowhere in America or arguably in the world. Is it not a hard time for wheat right now? But talk to us a little bit about that seed wheat business too. I think that is a, it's a opportunity maybe, or an opportunity space that I hear farmers talk about a lot, but I also hear a lot of excuses about why it's, they don't want to do it. Talk to me about your thought process around getting into the seed space and how that's worked in your business. The seed wheat business has really launched us into kind of a completely different business enterprise. It certainly takes some management. It certainly takes a lot of research. I think that's the thing that I didn't recognize getting into that space was how much research that took to get to pick the right variety that you to, you want to produce on the farm, but then also retail to the customer. I farm in a very competitive seed wheat environment, and a lot of the competitors that I compete with in this space drive sales by reducing price, or they drive sales by reducing costs. And our motto has always been, we're going to produce a high quality product, the genetics that you're looking for on your farm, and we're going to put it at a price point that's affordable. That's not necessarily cheap. And we have certain customer bases that we can't penetrate in that business model. We don't have the cheapest seed. We don't have average quality. And so Again, we pivoted in that space and did a lot of retail sales. We moved to a lot of the large retailers that were looking to provide seed wheat for their customers and develop those relationships over time. But it also took putting in a packaging plant. We don't just auger out 200 bushels of wheat onto someone's truck and they leave the farm. Uh, we package in 50-pound sacks, 2,000-pound totes. We even will package in containers that we've actually shipped overseas from time to time. Uh, we About a year ago, we shipped some barley seed down to South Africa. And it, we found that value proposition puts us in a great 
place to be successful. And it's growing some of those national and international markets that's really driven our business. Having said all of that, because of the minimal margin environment that wheat seed tends to be in in our area, we have chosen to discontinue that piece of our business. We sold out of our existing supplies here this year, and we made the very difficult call to just focus on the seed barley and craft grain space. And that's because it's our, our most profitable area of what we do, but it's also an area that we can control some of our market environment. We don't have to go to the bottom in price to be successful. We don't have to reduce price to have movement. We can control a lot of that market space because of our value propositions we deliver. I think for a lot of farmers who are considering or have considered investing in an additional business adjacent to their business or on top of their business, it's such a kind of, it takes so much energy to decide to do it that the idea of quit of like being aware that there might come a time that it doesn't make sense anymore is a bridge too far. And, and like, I think a lot of folks have a really hard time thinking about, I don't know, I've already started it. I've already set up the cheese making shop in town for my dairy, or I've already started the alfalfa business on the side of my cow calf operation. And I I just can't quit. I have to keep going because I've started talk. I wonder if you could just talk more about how that process went for you all of like, how did you evaluate getting to the point where we're like, it just doesn't make sense anymore. And I think that means we're not going to get trapped in, in the sunk cost. That is a lot to bite off in it. And that decision didn't come overnight. Where we really wanted to focus in making a decision like this, and we've made a number of these decisions over time, is we really had to drill into our numbers. Are our numbers correct? You know, what, how are we using our land? How are we using the tools that we have? And are we maintaining profitability? Is the information that we have, the data that we've collected, is it correct? And once we did that, then we started to move into a trend line analysis. Where are our trends? A number of years ago, I decided to get out of the sugar beet business because our sugar beet cooperative was struggling. Uh, We had a number of management issues within the sugar plant. We had a number of management and risk issues within the organization itself. And our farm gate revenues continued to decline and decline. And it was all because of the sugar beet. Very specialized line of machinery. We had a number of production practices in the field that were causing us to increase expenses in terms of nematode controls and things like that. And so we looked at about a four or five year period and the trend line for sugar beet profitability was trending downwards to the point where we projected it would be negative in a couple of years. The same thing happened with the onion business. After we learned those two lessons, we, we learned how to condition ourselves to take the emotion out of the decision. Sugar beets had been grown on our farm and in my family since the turn of the previous century. The Austrian immigrants that were my grandparents grew sugar beets over in in Europe. And when they immigrated the United States later on, a sugar beet was the mainstay. I was the first generation of varnishes to terminate that. And that was not a popular decision within the family, but it was a necessary one. The same is true with wheat. We love working with the growers. We've developed a very strong following. We had a retention of well over 90% of our customer base year over year. We enjoyed helping move wheat growers farms forward. But we looked at the opportunity cost and the loss of 
not only maintaining a reasonable margin for the efforts we were putting into that value added crop, but then we were looking at the resources we weren't dedicating to other parts of our business, such as export and moving seed barley across the country. And we've seen that by dedicating and focusing in on that business, we're able to grow it exponentially. So much so that we're now reaching out to other area farmers to grow seed barley for us to meet the growing demand. And so it, it was tough. I can tell you it took a, a huge mental toll on me as I picked up the telephone and called all of our loyal wheat customers and told them that after, at the end of this year, I would no longer be in the wheat seed business. And that was met with a whole host of di different reactions. But at the end of the day, we're also helping them find their next wheat seed provider. And we'll never leave a customer hanging, never. But we also had to put our farm in a position to be successful too. And getting rid of the seed wheat portion of that business was necessary. It's, it's apparent that you all have a very kind of advanced system for just understanding those numbers. I think even that you said the first thing we did was we made sure that the numbers were right. I think that's a stage that a lot of people never, they never really get to step one. So I think that's just fascinating to hear. Obviously, you are making these decisions with a ton of internal information about your business, about how things are working, about where the trends are. Now, in this, I don't know, always also, but specifically now, crop input prices are all over the place. Things are moving so quickly. Interest rates are trending up. How are you keeping a hold on all of the external factors that are creating all of this uncertainty? And how is that affecting your decision making at all? Do you have a way to maybe control some of that or feel like you control some of that? I'm curious how your thinking around that goes. We've been very conditioned in the last, say, five to 10 years to not have a great deal of escalation in cost. In fact, I would tell you in the last 10 years, interest cost or that amount of money that we were spending to, to operate wasn't even a top 10 expense for us on our farm. That's changing. That's changing rapidly. And I think the thing that's going to put us in a good position moving forward is we've got a team of advisors around us internally and externally we we have people that are that we trust that are looking out for our best interest as well as minimizing a lot of these input costs whether it's seed chemical fertilizer fuel we're trusting a lot of input suppliers to help us navigate that we're also scrutinizing our purchases moving forward and we're trying to find those next level efficiencies within our farm so if we can paint or cut costs 5%, that's a win for us. If we can improve yield by 4 to 5%, that's a win for us. And then lastly, but certainly not least, if we can become 5% more efficient in what we're doing, that's pretty good. That's the best we can ask for, but we're also trying to match the crop to the type of enterprise that we can afford as well. And we're also trying to find those weak links in in our farming operation, whether that's a piece of machinery, maybe it's a farm, maybe it's a cultural practice. We're trying to turn every stone to make sure that we can succeed and be here again tomorrow. But it takes people. And we have a very young staff here that is very dialed in on a lot of different things. And a number of those things that they're very dialed in on are maintaining profitability. My niece is our farm office manager here, and she scrutinizes a lot of costs. And she's pretty good, even when it puts her in a position to be confrontational with her father, who's one of our input suppliers. It's a nice thing to see that negotiation process take place.
I wonder if you could say more about the team. There's a lot of, I want to have a child of mine or a niece or a nephew come back to the farm, but I just don't think that there's opportunity or I don't know how I'm going to afford them or I feel limited and I feel like I can't have them do it or I don't know how to do it. How have you thought about that, first of all? And then it sounds like you think that they add some pretty good value around the operation. I wonder if you could talk more about that. Oh, for sure. To tell you a little bit about my staff, there's five of us in total, including myself, that are part of the farm. My most tenured employee, he's been with me since 2009, and he's the individual who does a lot of our field operations. He's a little bit older than most of our staff. He's a little bit younger than I am, but he's been my most tenured employee, and, and Jesus just really knows how to operate a farm. He does a really good job there. But then I have Casey, who's my farm manager. He's also my nephew-in-law. We actually lured him to our farm about nine years ago from a neighboring dairy farm. He felt a little bit pigeonholed in his role there on that farm. And we brought him over into the row crop irrigated agriculture side of things a number of years ago. And he's grown up through the operation and is really our key player. He's all things technology. He keeps everything working in the field. He certainly keeps tabs on a lot of the moving pieces of machinery and the when, what, and how. And then my niece, his wife, is our office manager. She's a little bit younger than he is, but those two are both our part of our millennial staff here that are very dialed in on the technology side of things. Taylor Ann comes from a banking background. She worked for a local bank here for a number of years. And so she brings over some of that finance side that's vitally key for any ag operation like our own. And then last but not least is Brett. Brett's worked for our operation for a number of years. He's also started his own on the side. And he's now focusing on some of the things we do in other parts of our business outside of agriculture. But Brett's been the enigma. When he graduated from high school, I thought there was a 0% chance he'd ever come back to the farm. It wasn't an interest of his. It wasn't something that he really wanted to do. He was, I think, going to go off and play college soccer for the rest of his life as he saw it. But something went off in Brett's mind when he had some opportunities to serve as an intern for a large irrigation company in eastern Colorado. He was an intern for a couple of years there and and he really learned the science and technology of water management. And he's brought a lot of that technology and experience back to the farm. And so roughly halfway through his senior year at Colorado State University, he decided that he wanted to come back and fill a role that we had opening up within our farm. And there's nothing that makes a farmer who's also a father more proud than to hear, I want to come back. Uh, you always hope that possibility exists, but you really know, never know how that feels until it happens. But I would also tell you it hasn't been always easy. Just like I'm sure it wasn't easy when I came back to the farm after college, Brett's had some challenges with us too, but we've worked through it and we're really on a much better trajectory today than we were just even five years ago. I want to tee off on something you mentioned in there, the tech side. As a person who's pretty data-driven, I'm sure tech is a part of a lot of decision-making, or at least some decision-making, maybe becoming a more important part of decision-making. The first thing you have to do is right, decide what tech is right for an operation, which is becoming a more and more daunting task all the time, what to invest in, what makes sense. I'm curious how you have thought about technology, maybe what kind of technology you're excited about, maybe any stories about successes or maybe not so successful technology adventures. Oh, gosh, we sure have a number of those, especially early in my career. Coming back to the farm from college, I thought I had all the answers, and that answer always lied in center of technology. But where I've really understood where some of my mistakes were made over time was becoming too early of an adopter of the certain technologies. Uh, 
especially in the software platform space. We're so unique here in Eastern Colorado. We've never really found a software platform that can manage our numbers, manage our enterprises and capture information as well as we would have hoped. And so I guess over time, our philosophy around technology is this. We need to adopt the right kinds of technology, the technologies that move us forward. Technology is a catalyst to change and efficiency. It isn't the reason for change and efficiency. And um, some of the successes that we've had over time, I was a very early adopter of GPS and auto steer technology back in the mid 2000s, probably about 2005, 2006. That's been the technology that's really moved us forward. Again, some of the issues that have not done as well for us is we really got caught up in the precision agriculture side of things and looking at the yield maps and trying to understand why this zone is more red than that zone. And it just felt to me in looking back in hindsight that maybe the industry got ahead of us a little bit. We could never understand the why, why a certain part of the field didn't yield as well as others. And the seed corn providers would always talk about the seed side of things. The fertility guys always talked about fertilizer, but in reality, there's still not a replacement for boots on the ground. And we found that those are the leading indicators, those yield maps. And then we really need to get out and become a detective and really figure out what some of our challenges are. I'll give you an example. A number of years ago, we had a cornfield that there was about a 14 or 15 acre piece of it inside of a center pivot that just wasn't yielding very well. It was 25 to 30 bushels off the pace. Looking at the soil analysis, the fertility was relatively the same. Soil types were relatively the same. The agronomist said, come on our farm and it said, what you've got going on is you have Goss's wilt here. The tissue samples didn't confirm that. We were at a loss, and it, year after year, growing corn in that spot yielded the same results. It wasn't until we finally, for lack of a better term, got fed up with it and went out and really just started to discover and observe. What, what is going on in this one spot in the field that no one else can seem to identify? We've thrown everything but the kitchen sink at this area, and we can't improve it. And then it occurred to me that maybe we have nematode in this area. So we pulled a soil test, sent it off to the lab, and sure enough, it was a nematode issue, a corn a stinger root nematode issue in that area. Treated it with a simple applied soil insecticide, nematicide the following year. Flipped that area of the, that piece of that farm right side up in year one. And so I still think with all the technology that we've adapted on our farm and all of that information that we're collecting, there's still no replacement for boots on the ground when you know that there's a problem. And I'd also tell you that we're graduating from what we would consider precision agriculture, and we really need to roll over into decision agriculture. How do we make better decisions? What goes into that process? Five, six years ago, we were collecting four, five, maybe 6,000 data points on our farm. And at last check this year, I think we're well over 3 million data points on our farm. So how do you take all of that information how do you decide, and, and I believe where we really need to go is to start discovering predictive analytics that will give us a higher delta or a better probability of being successful in field. And, and so I think that's our holy grail moving forward. Yeah, do you feel like things are trending in that direction that you're optimistic that might be 
coming or I don't know, when you look at ag tech and maybe some of the software platforms or other tools that it's, I don't know, are things plateauing? Are things getting better? I think some of that mindset and technology is beginning to emerge. How it, how it works on our farm, I'm still unsure, but we have the ability to interact with a lot of these organizations that are either beta testing or trying a few things on our farm and to try to help guide where that might go. I'm hopeful in that space. There certainly isn't anything off the shelf that's plug and play ready to get us there. But I think it also helps us grow our own minds and our own intuition as farmers of how best to manage us moving forward. I want to zoom out a little bit and talk about big picture as you look forward. I'm curious as you look ahead to 2023, it sounds like there's been some changes already in 2022. Are you seeing over the next five, 10 years, a lot more changes for the farm or a lot of uncertainty, or is it really just dialing in of the businesses you have now? I'm curious what your outlook is. Well, mother nature hasn't been on our side the last couple of years. So we're hopeful that that's going to turn around as dry as we've been the last year or so. We are hoping that we can certainly plan for a little bit more moisture in the future. It's a really complex issue of water in Colorado. And I don't know that we have the time to talk about the complexities that's with that, but we're planning for a drier climate, not necessarily because of lack of snowfall or lack of rain, but the changing dynamics of water diversion in Colorado are likely going to move us into an environment where we're not going to grow a lot of acres of corn. We're not going to grow a lot of acres of alfalfa moving forward because we simply don't have the water. So this year we adopted a new crop, grain sorghum. Some call it Milo in our area. And in year one, it's looking fantastic. It's a much smaller foot water footprint requirement than uh, certainly than corn and alfalfa. But I think it's also going to drive a very cool market segment for us, both in a commodity sense and in a distilled sense. So we're playing around in that space, uh, tying into some of our relationships in the craft beer and spirits industry. Looking out five years, of course, inflation is top of mind. We're not struggling with the access to supplies and ingredients and fertility like we were the last two years. But what we are seeing is an escalation in costs that's pushing us into an element where we have to decide again. You know, maybe we don't maximize that top end yield. Maybe we shoot for 80%, 85% of what our yield goals was because now we're focusing on profitability per acre, not necessarily yield per acre. Yield is always going to be a part of that answer, but it's not the driver. We're not going to spend the last five or 10% of our budget to try to get one to 2% more yield. We're just not going to do that. And then I think the last but not least thing that's really catching us off guard is the escalation in land values. Typically in this area, you could have bought any farm in Prospect Valley five years ago for five or $6,000 an acre. That number is averaging 15000 an acre today. And it's because large dairies have moved into our area that have elevated values. There's been large water speculators who've moved into our small farming community looking for water. But then there's also a lot of free market capital out there looking to find a safe haven and agriculture has typically been that. So when you sit down with your 26-year-old son and you sit down with your 29-year-old niece and you talk about acquiring farm ground, the short answer to this conversation is not here. It's going to be somewhere else. So I think the trajectory that we're looking for as our farm matures and changes over time is, where's next? Is it in our backyard? Is it in the next county over? Is it the next state over? Where's next? Do we vertically integrate more? Do 
we have our own malt house? Do we do something completely different outside of agriculture? Those are the conversations we have to have as we look at this as a business, as we look at this as a family, and then certainly as we look at it as an enterprise. Any last kind of either topics you wanted to touch on or things that you wanted to say more about that we've covered already? The thing that's been top of mind in our staff and our staff meetings here lately has been Black Swan. And it became a real popular topic leading into the pandemic. I'm starting to wonder if black swans aren't just everywhere. It always seems like that one thing pops out of nowhere that nobody was expecting. Ukraine, certainly this year, which provided some opportunity as a wheat grower market to, and try to capture some of that volatility. But I, I think the thing that I feel most comfortable in relaying to my staff is changes around every corner. Be able in your business plan, be flexible and keep looking for opportunity. Because even as hard as this year was from a production standpoint, we've got great opportunities in front of us. And I, I just hope we capture at least half of them. You can read Pam's full suite of stories featuring Mark and his fellow View from the Cab Farmer, Luke Garibrand from Ohio, and catch up on up-to-the-minute reporting on all things ag production with the DTN Progressive Farmer magazine or online at dtnpf.com. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer, with special thanks to Mark Arnish and Pamela Smith. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Weather Station. Are you looking to get more accurate, hyper-local weather information? By gathering weather and agronomic data directly from your own fields, DTN Ag Weather Station supports you when making targeted decisions around expensive or high-risk activities like chemical applications and irrigation. DTN's Ag Weather Station can be purchased for as low as $9 a month depending on your current customer status with DTN. If you're looking to increase your weather accuracy while saving time, please visit DTN.com.